Welcome. This is All the Fuck In, a podcast from two entrepreneurs about showing up for social justice in your work. This isn't your typical capitalist-focused entrepreneurial business podcast. There are already plenty of those. We're here because we've been craving voices rooted in activism, justice, and integrity with those values. These are conversations about all things business and entrepreneurship, but from a radical perspective that says we don't have to choose between social justice values and being successful in our work. This won't be a place where we claim to have all the answers. Our intention is to offer guidance and support while also encouraging our listeners to discover and live into more questions. We believe these conversations require ongoing practice and a consistent dedication to unlearning. If you're ready to go all the fuck in on what matters most while creating an abundant life, you're in the right place. And a quick note on our content, we believe self-care is radical and non-negotiable in the work of both justice and entrepreneurship. So some of these conversations include mention of trauma, both from a systemic and often racialized perspective and in relationship to experiences like sexual violence. We hope you do what you need to take care of yourself while listening, even if that means pausing and returning to an episode at another time or skipping it altogether. Hi, y'all. We're back. It's good to be here today. This is Tristan speaking. My pronouns are they, them. And this is Lauren. I use she and her. And we're here today with Dr. Sean Jinwright. Sean, would you like to share your name, though I just introduced you, and pronouns, <laughs> and along with your, your social location and your astrology, whatever astrology you're astrology. aware of. Astrology. <laughs> yeah. My name is Sean Jinwright. I go by he, him, his are my pronouns. Um, my social location, um, I identify as a African-American male that has uh, grown up uh, working with the working poor. Uh, folks are from the South of, uh, you know, lived in the South. So um, I'm a father, uh, I'm a husband, uh, I'm a professor, um, but most of all, I love justice. So let's, 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 let's get with it. Yeah, thank you. Um, and tell us, do you are you familiar with it, your astrology placements? I'm a Sagittarius, but uh, that's about all I know. <laughs> okay, that's good information. <laughs> oh, does that mean something like, oh, we got to deal with this Sagittarius here? Lauren, well, I know. So my my mother is a Sagittarius, and I know it's this is, you know, of course, stereotyping with sun placements. I mean, there's a whole, we could do a whole podcast about why we shouldn't reduce people to just one thing. Right. But I know that a lot of times they're like forever students. They're very curious. They love to keep learning. And yeah. So knowing what I know about your story, that, that seems to make sense. It seems to make sense. Okay. Well, we'll see if I, (laughs) if I live up to the Sagittarius myth. Will you share like a a bit about your work and how you got to do the work that you're currently doing, how you landed here? Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I, you know, most of my life I have um, in some form or another worked with transforming the lives of of African-American young people who just didn't have a shot in schools or were kicked out. um, And you know, worked in a number of schools and just, you know, realized that schools can only do so much for Black youth. 
um, and created my own organization and process that works with the transformation of, of Black young people's lives. And that journey has taught me so much about myself. Uh, it's taught me so much about our institutions and it's taught me so much about what I think we need to be engaged in as adults. And one of the lessons, um, well, I had, you know, I created a summer camp, I created an organization, created a body of research that um, sort of pushes and nudges up against conventional ways of thinking about how to develop young people. Um, and then, but one of the lessons that I got from that journey is that the, you know, transformation and deep change really comes from um, a commitment of the adults to make that change. It's, so it's sort of like teachers and youth development folks, they want, they want to know how to do it and they want to know what, you know, what to do. You know, what do I do with young people and how do I do it? And it's not so much of what to do and how to do it as, a much, as much as it is, is who is doing it. Mm. You know, the quality of the adult, the transformation of the inner adult makes whatever um, they want to convey and support young people with more powerful, right? So my work um, has really been about trying to articulate those dimensions of our inner transformation that ultimately have a reverberating impact on the structures and systems that cause us harm, damage, and trauma. And so that's what I've been writing about. And um, hopefully, you know, my, my vision is to really, you know, have these ideas um, begin to change the way we think about, you know, systems and institutions where young people find themselves. Yeah. yeah. Lauren, do you have a question or follow up? I, I do. Well, so first of all, I think this, is this your fourth book, The Four Pivots? Yeah, it's like the fifth. The, the, one of them is like a, an anthology, but yeah, this is like the, yeah. Fourth, an fifth. anthology is a book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I, it's a thing with words in it. <laughs> right. Well, congratulations. I mean, one book is a huge accomplishment, but five is like- Five books. I know, that's a lot. Um, well, I, so I, in preparation for this, I was listening to you on some other podcasts and you were talking about, I think you called them the three Ps. And I wrote them down here. Prevention, pathology, or problem is how- Wow, you did system... your research. Woohoo! Look at you. You were really excited. Oh like my. I said. Um, <laughs> well, and it's resonant too, because my partner works in school prevention work and he's steeped in this stuff all the time and shares a lot of the views you have about how we pathologize people, especially young people, when it's more about what's happening in the system and also what are we like dreaming about and creating rather than just what the problem is. So I'm wondering if you could speak to, I, I guess, like what brought you to feeling passionate about that piece of it rather than pathologizing people, like what's possible? Yeah. Well, when I was in college, um, I mean, I don't know how far back to go, but when I was in college, I... Uh, my friends and I, you know, we dreamed of sort of starting and opening up this this camp for for African-American youth. Right. And it was a camp, um, a one week summer camp on the campus of San Diego State University. Um, and we knew at that time that we wanted to op we wanted to create an opportunity for those young um, young people to experience something different. Right. And not to what was conventional at that time was programs that focused on 
preventing young people from, you know, sex education and drugs, or it focused on their problems, which is, you know, discipline, or let's teach kids how to, you know, follow the rules, right? Or some part of their brokenness, right? Their foster care kids and gave them a label or their, their delinquent kids, right? And so that's where the sort of, we wanted to not do that, right? But there wasn't really a framework in place at the time. And so we just started loving on our, you know, these young children. We, we provided play opportunities for these kids to play. We, we did workshops on black history and we, re we knew deep, you know, early on that, you know, the first trauma that black young people have is hating the fact that they're black, <laughs> right? And that we really couldn't go farther. We couldn't really do any more transformation about, hey, do well in school. And hey, you know, we couldn't do much else if we didn't heal that part first. So we, that's what we focused on, right? Um, and so the that your question around the those, you know, prevention pathology problems really came from an early understanding that, the, you know, that those, that was the prevailing way that black and brown young people are thought about and to a certain extent still is, right? And we know we didn't want to do that. And so when we created the camp, we created methodologies, insights about how to, you know, how to work with young people, um, particularly black youth. And we realize that it's not just, again, not the curriculum, but man, you have to do your own inner work, right? How can broken adults heal young people? And we, you know, after years and years of doing that, we began to, uh, I began to write about what was missing in the research and literature and how this other element uh, can really be more holistic in thinking about how to support young people. Mm. Yeah, it's like approaching people as whole and healed already. It's like not what's wrong with you. It's what's going on in your life that's harming yeah. you. And how can we support you? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even the, you know, even the early work uh, in trauma-informed care um, in an article I wrote um, talk, that introduces the idea of healing-centered engagement, the, you know, the, again, the lessons from the young people, which is, you know, the young man said, I, I don't want to come here every Thursday night on, you know, and talk about the worst thing that ever happened to me, which is trauma. And I want to talk about things I dream about. And that so much resonated with those young men that they began to create a vision of their own lives and sort of took over my trauma informed healing circle. Right. But it was an important lesson about focusing on assets and how assets can actually restore our humanity our assets can, you know, uh, restore our sense of purpose, how our humanity can, you know, restore our sense of belonging with one another, right? Um, and it's really cultivating the capacity to see the humanity in ourselves, with those we work with, and ultimately the young people that we want to transform. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing that. Mm. Okay, so how does that look? <laughs> yeah, because to me, this is like, okay, great. This leads us into the book. So the book, which the title, which we haven't named is The Four Pivots, Reimagining Justice, Reimagining Ourselves. And I'm, I'm about three quarters of the way through. And one of the things I'm taking from it, and like, correct me if I'm wrong, Sean, is um, that we have to be doing the inner work 
in order to be more effective in the outer work of culture change, of systems change. And so you've you've come up with four what you call pivots. They're essentially like turning point moments that we could go from looking out to instead being self-reflective about what's coming up for us and what's happening inside in our minds and our bodies. Would you share, I would like to hear you talk about the four pivots briefly for listeners who aren't yet familiar with the book and your work. And I really wanna hear like, how did you get here to discover and create this this framework, if you will? Yeah, I mean, I think there are multiple roads that led to the book. Um, when I one of the roads is I, I've lost dear friends <laughs> who were so soldiers to community change and justice that simply saw their lives um, as sort of you know, they saw themselves as soldiers for justice, right? Which is a different metaphor than a gardener for justice. Mm. And and the soldier metaphor for justice didn't give them permission nor space to be gardeners, right? And ultimately, you know, we, we I lost um, two dear friends. Um, secondly, um, I've seen really good work, organizations and people um, turn on each other <laughs> um, that are off that are that are trying to do the same thing, working in the same community, working with this, but 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 <clears throat> can't simply get along or ultimately don't have the tools to see the bigger vision. So um, I've seen burnout, right? I've seen people who, are engaged in community organizing or people who are uh, engaged in various forms of electoral politics, um, various domains of social justice work, just burn the hell out um, and say, I'm tired. And so, you know, when I, when I wrote, when I started writing this book, um, I shared it with my spouse and her friend and they're like, we don't want to read another book about education. <laughs> we don't want to read that. You know, and then I talked to my brothers who, you know, my brother's a truck driver and he's never read in my other work and academic work. And I talked to my other brother, he's a barber. They're like, we don't want to read that shit, man. Read something really good that we want to write. And so I, and so they challenged me to write something that was much, what that was not simply an academic book. And so those experiences being pushed from my family, but also wanting to tell the truth about what I saw as a missing ingredient in our quest for justice and pull those together in some elegant way. I don't know if it's elegant or not. You're reading it, Tristan. So, um, but pull it together in a way that's usable for people's daily lives, right? And so these four pivots try to encourage us to make the connection between our interwork that we need to do uh, and connect that to the outer transformation of the world that we want to create. And so um, I tried to, you know, like, is it six pivots? Is it seven changes? And anyway, so it, it kind of boiled down to these four. Mm, I love this. I love this too, because one of the things, so we recently had um, Kelly Nicole Palmer on the on the podcast and she was talking about the significance of reimagining and how if we're going to create meaningful change we have to and and like there's so many other 
amazing people out there who are talking about this importance too. Like I'm, th- I'm also reading Patrice Cullors latest book on abolition right now. And she's talking about the same thing. Right. Yeah. Um, and Adrian Marie Brown talking about the same thing. Like if we're going to create the change that we want to see in the world, we have to, we have to vision and dream. And that's like, to me, an underlying theme as you prompt people to engage in these pivots and these practices is like, how can we open ourselves up to what's possible yeah. in, in our world and in relationships? And, yeah. and so can you break down some of the main themes for our listeners? Like you've got yeah. it separated into the, from lens to mirror, from transactional to transformative, from problem to possibility, from hustle to flow. Can you highlight like some takeaways? Yeah. Are you comfortable yeah. With that? yeah. 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 So the first pivot is a pivot that really encourages, you know, like my own training um, in justice work was I was given the lens the lens is sort of the outward analysis of everything that's bad, right? It's calling out and understanding the significance of racism and its impact on opportunities. It's an analysis of understanding the, the you know, the, the lack of funding for schools and neighborhoods and jobs. It's a great, it's an analysis, which is such an important tool in our understanding of suffering, right? Um, but the tool is, it only gets us so far. And so the analysis fails, in my view, to force us to look at ourselves and and understand deeply about the consequences of oppression, the consequences of suffering in our own lives. Mirror work um, is also about our own, it, 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 it puts us, it makes us accountable to ourselves, right? And so what I have seen so much of is if this change, if we made this change, if we win this campaign, everything will be, that's the thing we need to do. But the road to get there was out any self-reflection about who we need to become, right? And so the, the first pivot is a pivot from lens to mirror and mirror work is essentially deep reflection, right? It's asking ourselves questions about who we are, what our insecurities are, what, what do I need to do? Who do I need to become? It's just mirror work, it's a reflection work. And then the second pivot is a pivot from transactional to transformative relationships. And, and there's a few chapters that sort of help us to understand um, the power of vulnerability in our transformative relationships and how um, when, we, when we create the space, um, for our humanity to spill out on each other, mm-hmm. that, that that opportunity creates um, a sort of human nexus that we're able to co- connect and be and see each other in different ways. And that's very different from the transactional relationships we oftentimes have in our organizations and institutions. The third pivot is a pivot from a problem to possibility. You've already talked about that. And that is um, oppression works at works on us in a number of ways it doesn't just block opportunities but oppression says that you don't have the capacity nor right to dream about anything other than me right in other words oppression doesn't give us the permission it withers away our capacity to dream because all we could think about is ending oppression and as a result our most courageous act is oftentimes a statement against the thing that it's a statement of 
our, our definition of success is an antithesis to whatever form of oppression. Now I'm not, and I'm not, and I and we need, for example, to have folks that are committed to anti-racism to take an active stance against white supremacy. That is absolutely important, and we need to continue that battle, that fight. And <laughs> anti-racist is anti-racist stance in ends or means. In other words, we are defining what we want by the lack of presence of what we don't. And, I, and, and I, I caution us, right, to define our end result by the absence of something rather than the presence of what we want. Now, and this is how oppression works. It just says, just, hey, the, the best thing you can think about is lower levels of my misery. So possibility, that pivot to possibility is an exercise of us thinking and imagining a world beyond the conditions that we currently face. Doesn't say we ignore them or we just kind of, you know, be, you know, kind of just go up into the, you know, the, the, the be, you know, be monks and sort of take ourselves out of the world. It doesn't suggest that. It suggests that we have to stay actively engaged in confronting the issues that we face, but it also means we've got to create that tough space of dreaming. We've got to create those tough spaces of imagination. And if we, without doing that, what we do is find ourselves in the sort of battle of playing whack-a-mold that our genius and brilliance as a people are spent, you know, the whack-a-mole game. Yep. I always tell this story about, you know, mostly most folks are usually, well, y'all are younger, right? So like, you don't remember arcades. And so we used to go to these places called arcades with quarters. Right? I've been to those, <laughs> me too, I've yeah. been there. You know those arcades, yeah. we used to go to arcades. Yeah. And there's this one game called whack-a-mole, right? And so that's what happens when we engage in this, this ongoing problem solving, right? And then lastly is the pivot from hustle to flow, right? Which is, we all know what that feels like to be in constant, persistent frenzy, this addiction to frenzy. And, you know, this, it's a result of capitalist culture that tells us we always have to be engaged in some some act of reproducing capitalism. And what this has created is this sort of addiction that we're not sometimes even aware of. And so the, the pivot from hustle to flow, it means that we have to create spaces and time to give us uh, more realistic timelines for ourselves, space for us to, to I, I have a chapter in here um, about a form of inequality that I don't think we talk enough about, and that's rest inequality, mm. right? like rest inequality, like just the quality duration uh, of rest. Um, we, you know, uh, we see in the research that communities of color um, have grossly different amounts, qualities, durations of rest and leisure than, than um, white suburban. Now that rest is not just like, I can't rest but it actually has a reverberating impact on overall mental health and well-being, and ultimately our, our capacity to um, create the kind of justice that we want in our society. So anyway, those are the, those are the four pivots that, that, that together, I hope, give us the tools to move our work forward. Thank you. It's really neat to hear you describe them. Um, I, I mean, I, I think you describe them really eloquently in the book. <laughs> it's 
And to hear you describe them in person is like a whole nother experience. There's like a 3D effect happening in my body <laughs> now. It's very cool. I want to ask who, who like I can imagine who you wrote this book for, but I'd like to hear you talk about who you feel like your ideal reader is. That's a good question. Okay. Um, it's a great question because, I mean, I wrote this book for, I think, two audiences. One, I wrote this book for sort of younger millennial folks that are engaged in some form of justice work. They could be teachers. They could be work for their social workers. They could be, you know, entrepreneurs. It doesn't matter, but they they want to they want to improve society. But the only tools that they've been given to improve society was, is the, the pivots, the, the, the ways of working and engaging that are not sustainable. In other words, they, the tool they get is the lens. The tool they get is more transactional relationships. The tools they get is just problem solve, problem solve, problem solve. And the tools they get is hustle and stay engaged in frenzy. And they kind of go, damn, I just feel like there's another way. And so I'm trying to give an alternative way for people to think about their lives and their work and give the spaciousness for them to explore that. So that's kind of the first kind of the younger kind of millennial folks. The second are kind of OGs like myself. <laughs> Not that I'm an OG, but I'm, I'm a OG in the sense that I've been in the game for a long time. Right. So like um, to, to, to sort of call out like how we need to show up and reevaluate our the way that we engage in this work, right? Um, and so for movement leaders, for people who are in charge of organizations and systems uh, that also have this angst that there's gotta be another way uh, to support young people in this school district. There's gotta be another way to provide supports to these parents, to give them the, some permission to explore new ways to engage their work for justice. So. I guess in, in, a, in a sense, those are the kind of two categories of folks. Cool. Why do you ask? I, I don't know. I, I think I asked specifically because I, I feel like some of the text I, I hear you saying, it almost sounds like you're speaking to black leadership specifically and like black community specifically. And I, I, I just wondered like, I'm always wondering, am I, am I taking something here that isn't meant for me when I read this book, right? Um, like, am I, am I co-opting or am I taking advantage of something that wasn't written with, with my body in mind? Um, yeah. and, and, I, and so I, I wanted to ask you, you know? Um, no, 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 I wrote it for you, Tristan, as well, <laughs> right? I did, no, I did. Um, and, and let me be, you know, I said that tongue in cheek, but I, 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 I these issues are not unique to black social change leaders, right? My experience as a black social change leader is so, so the examples that I give oftentimes are rooted in black and African and indigeneity and experiences, right? But the lessons I hope to have greater application or, or contemplation across the board. Um, and so that's the intentionality around that. And I was intentional about um, the examples. There are other examples. So there's an example in there. I don't know if you got to the chapter where I interview um, uh, someone who kind of a self-proclaimed white nationalist. Mm -hmm. um, and I did it. It was, one, it was the hardest chapter I wrote. It was hard as hell to write. But I, well, I did that because 
um, for a number of reasons that one, I wanted to, I wanted to sort of hear, I really wanted to hear, I wanted to learn like how someone and a group of people that don't think, believe like the same things I do, like, how do I actually navigate that? If I'm talking about, we need to be able to hear and understand belonging across difference, then I got to do that as a, as a writer It was really hard. <laughs> um, but also that, you know, these lessons uh, in that chapter, there's something that happens that I think was really magical. And that is he shared a story that was so raw and human that I don't care what your beliefs are. If you're not moved by that story, there's something going on with you, right? And I don't know if you got to that chapter, so I don't want to ruin it, but it's, um, you know, it's a powerful story that he shared that I, he dealt with this shit and me hearing it changed me. Mm. Not my, not my views, not my political views, but it changed me and how I see him because I saw this, wow, man, you dealt with that. Damn. I'm sorry, bro. I'm sorry to hear that, man. Um, so anyway, there are moments that I'm hoping that have some utility across difference, you know? Yeah, cool. Lauren, I don't want to keep throwing my questions out there because I got more brewing in my head. I want to offer space if you've got any on your mind. It, it's all good. I was about to take us on a tangent and I'm like, oh, wait, back it up. Um, what you just shared remind me about how you talk about how hurt people hurt people. You know, I'm in recovery going on three and a half years now and um, that's something they say in like recovery programs too. I mean, it, it's so true across the board. And when we are thinking about belonging, that always comes to my mind when someone's identifying with a group that's hateful or harmful, right? Um, but I, I want to go back to what you were talking about with dreaming and, and the pivot around problem to possibility. Um, I'm really curious, what does that dream look like for you? Like when you envision a future that's liberated? Like what, what does that look like for you? Personally? So that's a great question. So the first time I saw Black Panther, the movie, there's a scene where they first entered Wakanda and then they're walking on the streets and people are wearing these bright colors and it's African, but it's future. And oh my God, when I saw that, it was such a breath of, I, was, I felt like I was drenched with another view of possibility of black life. It was not in response to like, we're free now. It wasn't like, oh, we were enslaved, but now we're free. It was a vision that we have always been free and powerful. This is what our society would look like. It wasn't a statement against racism. It wasn't a statement against oppression. It was a statement of affirmation of the presence of black beauty and brilliance. And it was, so anyway, I was like, who the hell designed this scene? Because that person had to do that, mm. Tristan and Lauren, the per that person had to see it. They had to divorce and disconnect a vision of black future and possibility that wasn't in response to something else. I'm, I'm giving you a long explanation to your question, Lord. <laughs> but it was so beautiful. And so um, I think similarly, like I see, like my vision of possibilities as I see um, 
sort of a a braiding of America, right? A braiding where we have spaces that are both deeply who we are. Like I, 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 I believe that black spaces are okay. Like we need black spaces. They make me healthy when I go to the black church, right? Um, and we need spaces where we can actually come together and belong, right? And so I, I, my vision is, you know, because I'm an educator, I see that schools um, need to have the strategy and permission to, to create and cultivate those spaces. Um, I'd also like to see us have conversations about, you know, we talk about this Black History Month now, right? And, and I think, you know, it's important, but this comes from my own children now that are, they're just now in college, um, to, to, to really center the a Black conversation about a Black future, about Black possibility, right? And to interrogate that possibility, right? That is not where we've been, but where we're going, that, that you know, the, the conversation about Black history is important, but we can also have March as a month for Black Possibility Month, right? And, 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 and really uh, set the stage uh, for a vision about where we want um, our society to go in general and Black people in particular. This energizes me a lot to listen to you share all that. Um, and please cut me off if I'm talking too much about myself for a moment, but um, what you shared. So um, part of my work, I, I teach a little bit about um, similar inner and outer work, obviously different than what you do, but um, I just did a presentation with Tristan's group about like the hierarchy of needs and, you know, with an equity lens to use the word we're trying not to use, um, why it's harder for marginalized folks, particularly communities of color to get those basic needs met. Like we don't have systems set up to do that. And what you're sharing is so validating. I'm like, because I always come back to the point of if we had those first four levels of needs met all the way up through social, emotional belonging, like the world would look so different if everybody could focus most of their energy on that self-actualization, creating possibility, like imagining something better. Like we wouldn't just be solving the world's problems. We would just be creating so much beauty and joy. And um, so I, I personally feel very affirmed <laughs> by what you just said and what I spent time on. Um, but yeah, just thank you for sharing that. Um, I love that. Yeah, and it's not, that. and again, it's not, sometimes some folks say, well, what do we do about, you know, structural racism and structural right. inequality? And, you know, I'm not suggesting that we sort of, well, just dream beyond it and keep it moving. No, man, right. that's not, that's not what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting that we need to engage and continue that 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 front but that's not a it's not entirely complete right yeah it's There's dismantling and then building at the same time yeah they, they, they both have to, have to exist. my my son and daughter i just you know i look at what they're doing and i just i just know that that world is coming like he he's talking about cryptocurrency and blockchain and you know, decentralized finance and just, huh? I just, I, it's the same conversation we were having 30 years ago mm. about, you know, people were like, what, 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 how would we use the internet? What would we, what would we use that for? What, what you, what possibly could be useful with the internet? It's almost the same conversation. So I just know that there's things that are coming that 
is going to transform some of those basic understandings about structural inequality and and economic inequality. It, it means that we have to be in this conversation now so that we just don't reproduce them. <laughs> but but I just feel like there's the the there's a breath that's coming that I hope that we take advantage of. I'm just mm-hmm. I'm just so affirmed by what I see young folks doing now, you know. Yeah, you sound hopeful. I hear hope in your voice. And and so I want to ask you about that, because I'm guessing there are times where you don't experience hopefulness. Um, And I also feel like asking, you know, what feels like a really like almost cliche question at this point, but important for us to be talking about, which is like, do you think this is going to that the change that I mean, the change is already happening. Are you going to see the impact of the change that's currently happening in your lifetime? Are we going to see it in ours? I'm feeling a lot of hopelessness around the planet and like what's happening with climate change. Like, you know, there's a, I feel like my father keeps saying to me, like, why are you fighting so hard? Like, you're not going to see this change in your lifetime. And I'm, and my response is always like, what am I supposed to just stop fighting then? Like, and, and, and if it's if it's not for me, maybe it's for the generations to come. If there are no generations to come, then don't we have to keep fighting anyways? How do you relate to some of those questions and the possibility of hopelessness that might arise for you? Yeah, no. Um, you, so I, I write in the book about, at the end of this book, Ben McBride tells a story. Um, and, I, and so when he tells a story, I call myself like, um, a cathedral builder. And he tells a story about, you know, in order to build a cathedral, it takes hundreds of years, not like 100 or 200, but sometimes three to 400 years to build a cathedral. And so the builders of that cathedral knew without a doubt that they nor their children would ever see the brick that was being laid, but they came day in and day out. They laid the bricks, laid the foundation to build that cathedral, knowing that they would never see it. And so I think that view um, for some is dissatisfying, right? Not for me, because I see myself as a cathedral builder. That doesn't mean that sometimes there's no setbacks, but with our vision locked into the final result of that cathedral, right? That that to stand in grandeur and the grandness of that cathedral that we're trying to build day in and day out, that's the work of a cathedral builder. And who am I to say, who am I to be so selfish <laughs> to mm. believe that, that, that I need to see the res- end result, right? I, you know, my purpose here on, on earth is not to see that. My purpose is to lay that damn brick. Keep lay, lay that brick and lay it really, really well. And then hopefully, you know, my maker will say job well done. Mm-hmm. And so I, I um, get frustrated, obviously. I get, um, I get angry. Um, I get all of the range of emotions that come from unjust suffering in our society. And uh, I, I remind myself that I'm a cathedral builder and that if, I, if I'm obedient to that call, the end result is inevitable. I love that. 
Yeah, I'm guessing a lot of folks uh, feel seen by what you just shared and, and needed to hear that because with, with a lot of the people I work with, there's this cycle where something horrible happens. We go into kind of like you described that soldier mode. We burn out and then we're like, what is the fucking point if things are just going to stay bad? And that's a, that's a recipe to just kind of check out, even though there's no real checking out, we're all impacted by what's happening to each other. Um, and you're also reminding me, I think it's that, I think it's an Arundhati Roy quote, like another world's not only possible, she's on her way. And usually there's an ellipsis, like dot, dot, dot. I, on a quiet day, I can hear her breathing. But in between, when I've seen the full quote, it's like, I may not be here when she arrives, but here I am. You know, it's, it's like, otherwise you're just living in a state of hopelessness and depression, <laughs> you know? So I, I really appreciate what you just shared. And I'm also curious, um, you know, as you look toward the next few years of work for you, like, do you see yourself continuing to teach, continuing to write? Like, what, what do you feel your role will continue to be in this work as you move ahead? Yeah, um, wow, you, you're all asking some really good questions. I'm like, damn, I just finished this book. I just want to, I just want to like chill for a while. I just finished this book. You know, it took a long time to finish it. You know, my children and my spouse is like, hurry up and finish the damn book. So I'm like, okay. So now, um, you know, I feel like I've done a lot of um, like sort of on the ground work and, and community work. And, and, and I think what I want to do is I want to, I want to push people to think differently in my writing. You know, I want to write provocative ideas that shake up conventional thinking that makes us wrestle with stuff, right? Um, and it's okay. Like one of the cons one of the things that I want folks to wrestle with, um, not wrong or right, but like how we like how do we engage in debate and disagreement right without canceling each other right when do we when do we um and how do we dance between accountability and grace and when do we offer grace and when do we offer accountability that conversation i'm not so sure is a widely shared conversation but i think these are the kinds of things I want to write about, right? Like we need accountability for people who harm people, period. And we also need to understand what grace looks like. Mm. And we also need to learn to dance between the two. One tool, tool, two tools is always better than one. And so these are the kinds of ideas I'd like to, um, introduce, push, nudge, have people, you know, cancel me right, for the ideas, but, but just, just, you know, my, my, you know, I see myself as sort of, again, like a gardener that's sort of saying, okay, the soil that we've been working on, the nutrients in it are almost dried up. Here's some more fertilizer for us to nurture our, the soil that's required for us to grow this movement. Right. And um, that's kind of the, work that I want to see us engage. I want to see my, my work and be engaged in. I'm, I'm so glad to hear that, especially because so much of the conversation about quote unquote cancellation, I feel like has been totally co-opted by the right and is making it about like 
any accountability is evil and like you know what i'm saying like there's zero nuance a lot of the time the ben shapiro's of the world have just kind of run away with it so i'm so excited to hear that that's a direction you want to move in i'm also wondering um have you ever considered podcasting that's something that's ever been on your radar because i would totally listen to anything you put out i have not considered it um but um, I just finished the book. I just I finished know, the book, Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> but like when you're ready, I, I don't know. It comes to mind because I'll just speak for myself. For me, it's a lot easier to show up and talk than to show up and write. <laughs> in terms yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. The energy, yeah. but um, I yeah, would have to know how to do it and all that. I mean, I have so folks at Florida there. We do have a podcast called right. Karma Chronicles that you know, we host different people. I have, I've been on there once. I'm not the host of it, but, but, but yeah, I, 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 maybe. Yeah. Well, if you ever want to chat about it, let us know. We're happy. All right. All right. (laughs) I'd love to. I thought Lauren that you were going to ask if Sean wanted to run for office of some kind. (laughs) Um, that too. Although I know it's not everyone's, uh, mission in life. (laughs) No, no, definitely not office. Well, I, I also wanted to say I'm honored that you found our questions so uh, engaging considering we, we were just chatting, Lauren and I, before you came on, that you were talking to Brene Brown recently and we were like, how are we going to follow up Brene Brown? Like, <laughs> <you know>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, well, if you think that's something. So when I was uh, kind of prepping for her podcast, the person that, that she interviewed before me was Barack Obama. Oh. <laughs> So I was like, oh, shit. Oh, how am I going to ever prepare for this? No pressure. <laughs> I'm like, ah, I'll just tell the truth. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah, I just show up with, pre- I mean, you, presence is one thing you talk about a lot too. You know, it's it's a much more powerful place to stand in than trying to control and perform, you know. Perform, um, yeah. I, all I know how to be is me, so. <laughs> Take it or leave it. <laughs> yes, yes. Um. Tristan, I, I don't, I feel like I've just asked a lot. So please. no, no, you're good. I was going to start wrapping us up and just ask if there was anything Sean wants to share that you haven't already shared, anything you want to amplify in your work or anything you've got coming up. I know we're putting a lot of pressure on you for like future thinking, which you don't need to listen to right now. You have done plenty with, with your books, you know, but um, yeah. No, thanks. Thanks for having me. And I just, you know, I just really uh, encourage people to just dive into these four pivots. Um, and you know, know that the work that we're doing, we're building the cathedral. Every time we do a podcast, every time we have new conversations, we're we're laying a new brick. And to um, you know, you know, I, I really think people should interrogate the language that we're using to describe our work, and just interrogate it, right? And ask questions about, you know. Do I want to struggle? Do I, you know, is there another, is there a, what is, what is, how can we create justice by playing injustice instead of always fighting for justice? Can we, there's just different ways that I think we can saturate ourselves with the, the totality of the human experience to create the world's communities that we want to see. And so I hope the book helps people to move in that direction. Yeah. Thank you, Sean. Lauren, is there anything you want to ask or share as we conclude? 
No, no, you, you two have covered everything. And yeah, just thank you so much. I definitely think that's the impact your book is already having. And I'm, I'm excited to see it get into the hands of more folks and, and what comes out of it. Yeah. yeah. Hey, thanks for having me, Lauren and Tristan. This has been fun. And I'll be hitting you up to figure out how to do a podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We're here. <laughs> thanks, Sean. All right. Take care. You too. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of All the Fuck In. If you like what we're doing, we'd love if you'd subscribe to us on Apple or Spotify and leave us a five-star rating and review. This helps other folks find us. You can learn more at alltfinpodcast.com. That's A-L-L-T-F-I-N podcast.com. And on Instagram at alltfinpodcast.com or at Tristan Katz Creative, or and at Lauren K. Roberts.